Right. It's amazing. JNF in the north have also helped the culinary institute in Tel High and also in the industrial people to educate them and to work more or less better, you know, the engineers. I mean, it's, and it's amazing. Uh, they want to bring over JNF to the, the build the environment in the north where to bring in more than 300,000 people now to go north of Israel. You're listening to Return Again, where we look at Aliyah through the lens of Olim who have lived in Israel long enough to have perspective. I'm Goel Jasper, and my guest today is Tal Brody. Tal grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, and was a scholastic basketball star named to the Newark Star-Ledger All-State team before choosing the University of Illinois as his college of choice. He went on to star there as well and was eventually drafted by the then Baltimore Bullets, now the Washington Wizards, of the NBA. He was headed for a pro basketball career in the world's best league. Instead, he decided to play in Israel for a year, 1965-66, and that began an incredible journey that is still unfolding today. This was an amazing interview, filled with great stories, an incredible life decision, and more than anything else, a beautiful illustration of what a positive outlook can do for a person and for a nation like Israel. I sat with Tal in his apartment last week, and we talked about all of these things and lots of others too. And yes, I just had to get his thoughts on today's NBA, even though it has nothing to do with Aliyah. Anyway, here's Tal Brody returning again. from basketball what have you been doing you know uh, I don't know it sounds like you're a lot busier now than you were when you were playing <laughs> oh yeah because it's uh, the time is filled quite we have 12 grandkids probably I know three in Herzliya with my son mm-hmm. and Lena uh, three in Krasava my daughter and Yoav they got three daughters my oldest one she just uh, got her course mocking. Uh, okay. Oldest granddaughter. Granddaughter, wow. yeah. And then we got six in Bnei Brak. So we're quite well-rounded. Wow. Uh, the whole Jewish Israeli, experience. Uh, family <laughs> in, yeah. as far as everything. Uh, Bnei Brak and everything that's involved in Bnei Brak. Yeah, you're of saying. course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of Alex, now with the uh, six grandkids, so she's lighter. My grand, uh, youngest daughter, there, she's lighter with my wife. You know, my it's my wife's daughter from her first marriage. Okay, got it. And my uh, six other ones are from... Uh, from your first marriage. My first uh, Yeah, yeah. Twelve grandchildren. Yeah, Beautiful. but twelve altogether. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so Tal Brody, finally. Uh, I, I really appreciate uh, the ability to speak with you. I have, I have to let you know one thing. When I first came up with the idea for this podcast, I said, I need to interview two people. One is Naftali Bennett's mother. I want to speak with her about her Aliyah experience. And we did that. We did that a few months ago. It was great. And the other one is Tal Brody. And so thank you for agreeing to this. I really appreciate it. And you welcome me to your home. Very nice. And I appreciate it. 
Thank you very much. In fact, it's an honor. So <laughs> I also appreciate it. It's very nice. You know, it's, uh, if growing up in Trenton, New Jersey, if somebody would say to me that I'm going to pass up the opportunity to play in the NBA, to go to Israel, I would say that, uh, what, are you kidding me? All right, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Because uh, as you know, I'm a basketball fan. I have a lot of questions, but, but we'll get there. Okay. First, growing up in Trenton, when is the first time you even heard about the concept of living in Israel? Well, basically about the concept of living in Israel growing up in Trenton, New Jersey in the 60s, let's say. Israel in the late 50s and 60s didn't have television. Only television came in after the Six Days War right. in June 1967. So there wasn't really any concept of making Aliyah to Israel. I went to Sunday school, you right. know, as sure. most of the secular Jews would probably go, uh, you know, one time a week, yeah. and learning about the Bible, and pra practically nil about the modern Israel. It wasn't really modern at that time, but let's say... <laughs> right. Let's say that people had cars, not only donkeys and camels, and there were streets and not only sand, but we learned about the sand and the camels and the donkeys and, uh, you know, not the modern day-to-day -day Israel of the social life, yeah. of the family life, of the sport life even. Which, and so it was a different thinking about Israel, which, it, you know, Israel, we thought about the Bible, that uh, we're part of the Jewish community, we're part of the history of Israel. But there wasn't in the community where I lived any type of even mentioning or talking about making Aliyah to Israel. And at the same time, in your family, like your grandfather had lived in Israel, even well, your dad spent a few years in Israel. Sorry, I did my research. Uh, so there, there was a little consciousness of Israel in your family. Consciousness, yes. Uh, my father lived in Israel from 1921 to 23, and wow. my grandfather from 1921 to 31. But at that time, it was under the mandate of Palestine. Sure. And I'll get to that when I'm speaking in the universities, when, uh, when I'm in a tougher classes, you know, yeah. mixed classes, and right. they say, they ask me, Tal, what's happening with the Palestinians? And because of that background with my father, knowing that he lived under the mandate of Palestine, so I said, well, which uh, Palestinians are you talking about? The Jewish <laughs> ones or the Muslim or Arabic ones? Right. And they're looking, they're looking at me with shock, you know, <laughs> and he says, well, uh, what, you, they're Jewish Palestinians? And I says, yes, my father's a Palestinian. <laughs> and right. then they look at me and even greater shock. And then they say, well, um, aren't you Jewish? And I says, yes. But you have to understand, everybody living under the mandate of Palestine, not a Palestinian state, right. at that time not Israel, but uh, under the mandate of Palestine, the Jews and the Arabs, and Muslims, Christians, uh, uh, Jews, everybody living under the mandate of Palestine, if you want to call them Palestinians, that's what they were. So, in my background, I knew my father, 
lived in Israel, uh, which was, I mean, I knew it as Israel growing up. Right. But because I was born in, uh, in 43, 1943, but still, uh, as a teenager and as a you know, student, uh, I realized that uh, in 1948, really, the Jewish state was created. So about making Aliyah, it was never spoken in the house. And also my father, within his experience and everything, never really related that much, you know, to his background. But uh, after he passed away, when I you know, researched and I saw that the papers that he was, you know, born in uh, Russia, Poland, in right. uh, Lodz, and went to Europe, and then from Europe, him and my grandfather, they went to uh, at that time, uh, to live in Palestine, the Mandate of Palestine under the British authority. So there wasn't really, even in the home, uh, talk about, no, talking about making Aliyah to Israel. Everything was centered, I mean, as far as my life was centered about playing basketball. Right. I went to a public school. Uh, uh, also uh, junior high and also uh, uh, elementary school in Trenton. It was uh, basically all public schools. And since uh, junior high, we had a high, junior high school league. And I played with junior four. And uh, um, that's when I started to really get into basketball through the Jewish Community Center in Trenton. Right. Uh, through the Police Athletic League right. in Trenton, and also the Boys Club, uh, which was a league in the middle of the week. And at, in the United States, they even, in sports, in the, your local newspapers, they talk about even bitty basketball. You wouldn't see it like in the Israeli newspapers here, uh, accentuated, uh, which I think is, Something right. missing because I think that encourages youth that are talented to go forward, to continue on. That's right. There's no structure of, of youth leagues here the way there is in the United States. And, it, and if you're not in the Nivcheret, right, if you're not in the, the, the municipal team that's yeah, focused the, on excellence... There's no, there's no real yeah, the, venue for you. The um, Israeli structure is basically the world structure outside of right. the United States. Right. It's all connected with clubs. Right. It's not connected with the schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Within the last decade or so, schools have, or there's been formed a, a high school, let's say, sport association, which for a tournament once a year. But it's not the same as in the United States where the whole school system, you have the beautiful gymnasiums even in, uh, in elementary schools. True. In junior high schools for sure and in high schools for, uh, for sure. Right. I mean, I remember our stadium in our arena in Trenton Central High. Yeah. Uh, when I came to Israel, there wasn't anything like that, you know, and it was a high school. <laughs> That's right. Thousands, so, thousands of seats, right? Yes, a yeah, few thousand. Yeah. yeah. So basically, so when talking about if I had any type of uh, background where people were speaking about, are you going to make Aliyah to Israel? No, that wasn't in the discussion. Yeah, uh, and so you're, you're, so you're, as you said, entirely focused on basketball. Entirely basically, focused on basketball. Ba basically. You, you have to be. 
to wind up at University of Illinois at the height of 6'2", I'm guessing? 6'2", yeah. At the height of 6'2". One, you know, it's not like you were a seven-footer, no. right? Who, even if you just are lazy, you can get a scholarship. At 6'2", you've got to be a hard worker, you've got to be into it, you've got to be a smart player, you've got, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to devote all your energies to the, to the craft of being a basketball player. And this is what's so fascinating to me about your ultimate decision, which we'll get to. But how much of your time in high school, let's say, was devoted to getting that scholarship to a strong athletic college? Well, uh, it's quite a, uh, quite a lot of the time, practically all the time. But the difference is in the United States, uh, let's say after junior high school, when I went up to the high school, right. uh, the coaches are coaches that are coming out of colleges, educators, uh, educational psychologists, and uh, they're background in sports, so they're coaching, if they're coaching the team, the educational system uh, basically puts out that message that, look, if you want to go to college, to continue your basketball career on the way to possibly a NBA or let's say in basketball or whether it's in baseball, uh, Major League Baseball or right. in football, the NFL, it's the same system that says you gotta... This is the structure. Yeah, the right? structure <laughs> is that you have to con uh, work hard on the academic side in order to have the grades to be able to be accepted in the college that would want to give you a scholarship for four years, you know, to study and to play whatever sport that you're in. So that structure actually puts you in an educational framework within the time that you're going to give to becoming a professional player. Right. So when you're in the school system, you're practicing every day and you have a league. When you're not in the school system all over the world, you're in a club mm -hmm. that after school you go to the club. So the clubs want to win. Right. So you have to be lucky if you have a good coach that says you got to study and you got to keep your education. You know, right. because you're, they don't have big, pro, they don't have the major programs or not in the schools. They have today in the universities, they have in schools, as I said, the high school in Israel, the high school sport association for volleyball, basketball, all these other tournaments, these sport tournaments. But it's not the clubs. The clubs run all over the world. The Federation of International Basketball, FIBA. They also have FIFA for soccer. Right. And they have like a EuroLeague in basketball. These are the major organizations that are running the programs not from the you know they want the they they put out messages from the educational side of course but it's not like being within the inter, educational inter, intertwined system. right they're not interrelated right. so i did have to put in a lot of time also to make sure that i had the grades mm -hmm. to be eligible to go to college right so Basically, uh, coming out of Trenton Central High School, where our team went 24 wins and no losses, and we beat Camden, which was an excellent team in Still the finals. Still a power in New Jersey, Camden. Yes, Camden yeah, is, yeah. is a powerhouse. And the games were at Rutgers, uh, Rutgers University Stadium. 
And after winning uh, Camden and going 24-0, I was selected to the New Jersey top five all-state team. I think it was the Nork News or Nork Star Ledger. Right. And uh, and uh, I had uh, wow an abundance of offers for colleges, but my coach was a real educator. Your high school uh, coach, Dr. Freddie Price. Yes, a real educator. And he said, no, you're not going to go flying around to 40 colleges. <laughs> you know, you're, let's choose four different leagues. Oh, interesting. And those teams within the leagues that you would, let's say, go to visit. And then decide where you want to go. So, of course, the Big East was one of uh, the closest to, <laughs> you know, on the East Coast because I used to take that train from Trenton, New Jersey <laughs> to Penn Station, yeah. 30 minutes to Philadelphia to the Penn Palestra. I don't know if it's uh, It still at that exists. Time. It still exists. Uh, but I, know, I know the Warriors got a 76ers. They <laughs> right. got a new stadium yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. a while ago. And uh, so I used to watch uh, Temple, LaSalle, St. Joe's, Penn. I mean, all those in the Big East, it was great. The Big East had good teams. Yeah, yeah. That, but when I um, went to uh, uh, visit there, they didn't have the gymnasium as they, had, as they have today. Right. And so uh, Coach Harry Litwack, when I saw the gymnasium, and they went up to the third floor where their gymnasium was. I said, geez, this reminds me of the Jewish Community Center where I learned <laughs> to play basketball, where I used to shoot in one half of the court. You would hit the ceiling if you, if you shot. And Temple's uh, also inner city. It's, 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 it's not, not very it exciting. It didn't seem to me as the top, you right. know. Right. And down in the Houston in the south, you know, uh, it was a nice school and everything, you know, but uh, and same with the... Uh, visiting, I visited North, in North Carolina, North Carolina State. Uh, right. And still, the segregation was down there, and I didn't feel right going down south because of the. Uh, I played, and the majority of our team were African Americans, and I felt that there would be like a slant to go to a southern school where blacks weren't allowed at that time to go to the same bathroom, same water fountain, and uh, maybe I'm not on the same bus or. Right. You know, and it was like an all-white team, and I and I I didn't feel right, you know, and my best friends on the basket, you know, were the guys that I played with, you know, the Georgie Lee, Teddy Ganges, Crowell, and all these guys that we would go pick up games in Philadelphia, New York, and going around, and all of a sudden I'm going to go down south. So to an I visited, team, yeah. but I didn't feel right, and then when I visited Illinois. And Illinois, uh, they were looking for an Eastern guard from the East Coast to fit in with good centers, good forwards, a couple good guards also, but they wanted an Eastern guard to fit in into the Big Ten. And they had a new stadium coming up for 16,618 <laughs> at Assembly Hall. Now they changed it to the State Farm. They did right. renovations there, right. but it was like a flying saucer. And I saw that this was fit for me. I thought I, I liked the I, I liked the feeling trying to go to the top and I felt the Big Ten Conference, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio State, Michigan, all the those teams that are yeah. you know legendary. Legendary, legendary. And and that's when I went back, I told my coach, I think I'm gonna choose Illinois. I you know I 
And uh, that's when Harry Litwack from Temple came to the house right. and he was, you know, and he talked with him and, and he's a... He was surprised? He, he's like a legendary coach, Harry sure Litwack, was. and with his special defense. <laughs> I don't think very, too many coaches figure it out what's going on with Harry, Harry Litwack's defense. And uh, yeah, he said to me, look, he says, uh, I, I mean, why don't you come to Temple? You could be a big fish in a big pond. You small could be pond. a big fish in a small pond. And I said, Coach Litwack, you know, I've been out to Illinois and I saw the team that's coming in and I saw the league that they're playing and I saw the facilities that's coming up. I want to try to be a big fish in a big pond. And, you know, that's the way my philosophy basically carried out in life, tried to get to the dream. You Do you know, remember his reaction, top. by the way? Did I think he understood me, yeah. because at that time, as I said, they practiced on that third floor gym, <laughs> although that the Penn Palestra was a nice facility, yeah, sure. and they had good teams, and he was a great coach. I mean, uh, really a legendary coach, Harry Litwack. At Illinois, yeah. how Jewish was your experience there? In the first year as a freshman, we weren't allowed to play varsity. Mm -hmm. And uh, the basketball guys were in the dorm more or less together. Sure. So in my first year, I had some funny experiences that, uh, because it was the first time I was away from home. And in the home, my mom kept kosher. We did Kiddush on Friday night. We would fast on Yom Kippur. We would walk to the synagogue on Yom Kippur, even though that it wasn't close hmm. uh, to the house at this time. And that mystic feeling, you know, all the time that when I was a young <laughs> grammar school kid, all the kids would run out, you know, into the street. And I was always wondering, this is Yom Kippur, why, why do I have to walk to the synagogue when I see cars all around me? <laughs> right. You know, something was missing. Yeah. You know, I felt something was missing, you know. Or you were missing something, maybe. <laughs> something was missing in oh, that you're environment. you're saying Illinois, at Illinois. No, no, oh. uh, not at Illinois. Something was missing when I was growing up as a kid. Being in a, a, a traditional Jewish home. Right. Uh, you know, and why do I say that? Because one of the things which I can't get used to in Israel from the first day in Israel, when people ask me if I was religious. Yeah. And... Uh, there's no other alternative, you know, uh, if you're not, if I don't say that I'm religious, that means you're non-religious, you know? Right. And I can't, I, up to today, I still can't get used to that type of thinking. You know, in the States, you have, you have secular, you have reform, you have conservative, orthodox, uh, Haredim, reconstruction, you have everything, but you're Jewish, you know? Right. <laughs> I'm right. Jewish, you know? Yeah. Some people ask me if I'm Jewish, you know, but, you know, and I says, yes, you know, but, uh, but are you, you're not religious? I said, I, I said, not religious, wait a minute. I go to the synagogue on Yom Kippur, I fast on Yom Kippur, I have mezuzahs in the houses, I, have, uh, I was married by a rabbi, I, uh, my kids had all, uh, the boys had the circumcision, the <laughs> girls had bat mitzvahs, and the boys had bat, and, and the guy said, somebody's asking me if I'm, uh, that I'm non-religious, you know, I cannot, I couldn't get up to today to that concept of Israel, right. you know, as a secular family in Israel, uh, our youngest daughter, she, uh, 
has a lot of tshuva. She returned to religion, you know, right. and she's living even in Bnei Brak, and she has six kids. It's the NBA of, uh, that's the NBA two, of, yeah. uh, of Orthodox. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the other two kids have also six grandkids. So you have six grandkids that way, six grandkids that and But, okay, when they're coming here, we have uh, special plates, and we order uh, different, you know, special foods from biscotti. Right. But we arrange, you know, and... Uh, on Friday night, it's uh, when we have kiddish with the with the, my other two children. It's different because they won't drive on a Friday. That, but it's understandable. But let's say like on holidays, let's say like Hanukkah, they they're coming. We're all together, and uh, so we manage, you know. So at Illinois, so that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And when somebody asks me if I'm religious or non-religious, what what you know, what kind of answer I could give him? Because he thinks of religious different than what I think of what being religious. I'm, I feel that I'm religious, you know? yeah. but he, he, this other person doesn't think I'm religious. So right. whatever he thinks, let him think. Whatever I think, <laughs> I think. But, you know, if I'm not doing, uh, what, 513, uh, Six, 613 mitzvot, but I'm doing a lot of mitzvot, so I feel good about the mitzvot doing. <laughs> Right. You know, right. So anyway, but uh, I would say we're a traditional Jewish family, and I do have that mystic feeling, and I do love uh, the holidays here because you, you feel the holidays, you know, like Yom Kippur, you know, you look out the, the window in your house uh, on the way to the synagogue or coming back, you know, maybe you'll see an ambulance, but you won't see an abundance of cars like uh, growing up in the city in, in Trenton. So you feel the holidays, you feel the holidays. So. Uh, going to Illinois, my first year, I didn't have that surrounding atmosphere. Uh, there were uh, Jewish fraternities and Jewish sororities on campus. And the synagogue, uh, we had the synagogue, and I knew that uh, when Yom Kippur came about that I was going to go to the synagogue. And interesting enough that uh, I, I called my mom after, you know, it was after, I think it was uh, during Rosh Hashanah or before, uh, after Rosh Hashanah or before Rosh Hashanah, I told, and I told my parents that, they, wait, you know what, that I fasted and everything. I was really proud of it, you know. And then my mom says, Tal, but it's not Yom Kippur. It's, <laughs> you have to fast on Yom Kippur. And so I said, okay, then I'll do it again. You know? That's fantastic. So anyway, so, you know, things happen. It's the first time I'm, you know, you're, you're away. Uh, right. I was at uh, Claire B's camp with Wilt Chamberlain up in the Catskills in the yeah, mountains. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this was, I was away from Trenton for, you know, in a different atmosphere and away from home. And uh, the first time, like in the holiday, be, in uh, Yom Kippur being away. So I got mixed up, uh, not mixed up, but I, I don't know. I thought that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Anyway, so... But as uh, in my uh, second year or third year, second, second year, third year, um, I went into a Jewish uh, fraternity oh, at okay. the ZBT. And right. so we had, you know, a surrounding and I had, we had the synagogue in the city. But I would go on the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur to the synagogue. And... Uh, in the, in the fraternity house, uh, the guys were Jewish. I would go home with them, and you know, like in the different holidays that I didn't fly back to mm -hmm. or drive back to to Trenton, and uh, so I did have more of a Jewish surrounding. But then again, about 
And if anybody would say we're making Aliyah to Israel, I would say that I never really been in that atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, going out of Illinois, basketball was my life, you know, I mean, and, uh, but as I said, I was tuned and into that thing that education goes together. Right. So I studied, I got my uh, bachelor's degree, and I got my master's degree in educational psychology, but at the same time, you know, that Illinois, uh, you had to keep up, you know, your studies as well. You, you can't just flunk every course right. and uh, continue. You gotta stay eligible. You know, you have to stay eligible. Right. Right. Especially like in the, in the Big Ten, you know. Sure. It's, it's, uh, it's right, just, just so the listeners understand, the Big Ten institutions are also good academic schools. It's yes. not, it's not yeah. some cheesy little college. These are no, excellent these are, universities. These are excellent universities, yeah. the big universities. Uh, I think during my time there was about 25,000 students, but I think today it has grown over 35,000 students, if not more. Right. So anyway, it was a great program. The basketball program was great. Uh, as I said, as a freshman, we weren't allowed to play, but it's good because we're able to get into that track of, of getting into the um, studying, you know, at the same time that you're practicing. Sometimes uh, you're practicing twice a day, but you know that you have to be prepared. Right. If you would need a tutor for any type of subjects, uh, as a freshman, you're not traveling like you are as with the uh, varsity. Oh, for, the, for the games. Right. So it gave you a good opportunity to get get on to the studying and playing. And then as a sophomore, I started with the four juniors. I, I took uh, Jerry Colangelo's place. Uh, <laughs> Jerry graduated. Wow. And we would play against each other. I was a freshman, he was a senior. And he really tuned me into uh, playing as a playmaker in the Big Ten Conference. And when he graduated, I went up and played, played with four juniors that became seniors. We were number three in the nation. We won the Big Ten title. We beat Pat Riley's team in, the, in Adolph Rupp in the Kentucky Invitational in right. Kentucky. Right. And then we went on also. Well, I mean, they must have still been an all-white team then, Kentucky. Kentucky, right? I believe so. He was a real holdout. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Louis Dampierre, uh, Pat Riley, they had a good team. And then we came into Madison Square Garden, the holiday festival is one of the major tournaments in the United States. Right. And we beat uh, NYU in the semifinals with Barry Kramer, a Jewish kid that mm. uh, scored 42, 44 points against us, but we won against NYU. That's when they had great teams. Right. And then we went on to beat West Virginia. That Rod Thorne took Jerry West's place during that period of time. And uh, we beat them and we won the holiday festival. When I graduated University of Illinois, I, I had the honor to be selected to the All Big Ten team, to the Sporting News, uh, 10 best players in the United States at that time. Uh, Rick Barry, Billy Cunningham, Gail Goodridge, Jerry Sloan. These are all, uh, other than Sloan, the other three are Hall of Famers. Maybe Sloan's even a Hall of Famer. I mean, these are, these are the oh, legends. Yeah, Jerry Sloan, he coached Utah after yeah, yeah, that. Sure. Uh, Bill Bradley uh, went on to the Road Scholar. And right. uh, he, uh, New York Knicks. Uh, and, these, and you. And all the, all the 10 guys. Uh, Bill Bradley, I did as Bill Bradley. He, Bill Bradley went to, as a Rhodes Scholar, mm -hmm. he went to play with Simmental in Italy. 
After going for my master's degree, I went to Maccabi Tel Aviv. Right. And this right. is where the story, my story changed, you know, my goals and my objectives in life and uh, goals in life. So anyway, uh, the NBA was not the same NBA as today, but to be offered 12.5% of the highest paid pa uh, salary at that time, Will Chamberlain with $100,000 a year, yep. and Bill Russell with 11 basketball championships, $101,000 right. a year. Yep. So to be offered, all of us, that group, 12.5% of the highest paid players, when I look at it today, to be offered 12.5% of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson's salary of 45 million a year and 44 million a year, right. I think that's a great honor. <laughs> so that would be about five and a half, something like that, million a year. So that's not bad. Not bad. But 1965 was before David Stern's era, right. before he brought in the television, and he changed the NBA. And I was drafted 12th in the draft, which is also a big honor, by, today it's the Washington Wizards, but right. the same owner, A. Poland, that uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Uh, the Baltimore Bullets were the Washington Wizards, and um, I went through the rookie camp, they got me a nice apartment, uh, and everything was ready to go, and to wait in that summer to joined the team in, at that time, they, the practice started at uh, uh, preseason was in September, today it's in October. Right. And all of a sudden comes the seventh Maccabee games. Uh, seventh Maccabee games, um, there were 1,250 Jewish athletes from 25 countries. And this past Maccabee game, there were over 10,000 Jewish athletes from close to 80 countries. That's how the, the Maccabee games have grown unbelievably. Now, if somebody would ask me that uh, I would give up that opportunity to play in the NBA and go to Israel, <laughs> going, I think, even up to college, I would say, you crazy, you know? Yeah. Third, third world country to begin yeah, with, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> you say, where did this idea come up to? You know, if somebody ever offered me to go to Israel to play basketball and, yeah. or go to Israel in general and, you know, turn down on the opportunity to play in the NBA, I'll really say that. What are you, crazy? <laughs> and, but that 7th Maccabee or the 1965 Maccabee games changed my whole thinking when... It wasn't only the fact that we won the gold medal, and, but traveling around Israel and seeing the country and seeing the life and meeting the people and meeting Jews from these other countries. When the fellow Noah Klieger, he was the chairman of Maccabi Tel Aviv. Okay. He came out of the concentration camps and when he was talking to me, when the coaches of Maccabi, Yeshua Rosen and Ralph Klein, brought me to Noah Klieger. I saw that the guy had the numbers from the concentration camp. Right, on his arm. Yeah. And on his arm. And 
uh, that reminded me, growing up in the United States during the 60s, all the movies were Audie Murphy, John Wayne, you know, the Nazis, what they did to the Jewish the Jews and the, what the German at that time did to the Jewish communities. It, and all of a sudden I, I'm feeling like, what could I do? You know, I'm a kid growing up in the States. I mean, there's, uh, what could I do? And all of a sudden, this guy that came out of all that tragedy is asking me to take one year out of my life, come to Israel. Uh, the country is in a very serious recession. The uh, uh, Arabic boycotts all around us. The team Maccabi Tel Aviv never got past the first round of the European Basketball Championships. And if a guy like you would come, maybe you can make a change and make a big difference. And this is what they said to you. Yeah, and plus that there's a very serious economic re uh, recession and the people aren't smiling. And put together that my father was here 1921 to 23, and my grandfather right. 21 to 31, and they were instrumental in the crew that built the first electric station, Rothenburg, in Naharayim in Israel, and the first airport in Herzliya. Right. And also the first cafe on the, the Tel Aviv boardwalk. Interesting. Uh, strip. Wow. Putting all that together, it was something which, you know, hard to refuse. You know, he's not saying give up your whole career in basketball. He was never, smart. I, he was, only he was smart. He said one year. One year. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't think it was a big deal. And I spoke with uh, the Bullets at that time. And they said, I'm going to take one year off and uh, come to Israel and try to make a difference. And then uh, let's see what's happening with the team in another year. And uh, that's what I did. What was their reaction? The it, it, they really couldn't say anything. They just, you know, they thought that I, you know, I was going to come back uh, to be ready to go in uh, September. And but a Poland, being Jewish, he, it, they didn't put any pressure on me. You know. You think he kind of got it? Possibly. You know, yeah. as a Jewish person with uh, traditional feelings. Uh, I would have to, uh, I didn't know that at the time, but, but later on he brought, was the first owner of the NBA, of an NBA team that brought them to play in Israel. Interesting. Really? Yeah. You know, so basically that's how I got to Israel. And if you're talking about Aliyah, even at that time, Aliyah wasn't in my mind. Right. You know, and it wasn't something that you can say, are you Zionistic? If you're, did you come because of Zionism? I couldn't even, you know, I can't even answer that. I would say I came to make a change by basketball in the country, to maybe give people a pride and uh, make them smile and maybe to take a team past, uh, which never got past the first round to another level. Right. And so that's basically when you ask me about if I ever thought about Aliyah, 
Were you thinking about, uh, ever into a situation where you knew about Zionism? No, I didn't know it. I didn't know about what is Zionism. I didn't know about thinking about Aliyah. I mean, if somebody said to make Aliyah, when I'm thinking about playing pro <laughs> basketball, I would say, you're crazy. Right. You know? Okay. I, I have to ask. I accept. That's a great explanation of everything that happened. But still, growing up in New Jersey, it's becoming clear to you that you're particularly gifted in basketball. Your coaches are helping you, you're training, you're working really hard. You go to University of Illinois, you become a big fish in a big pond by being on the all Big Ten team and leading your team to number three in the country and all American and, and all these kinds of things. The NBA is the dream for, for a kid from Trenton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And yes, the money then in the NBA wasn't what the money is now, for sure. Um, and the conditions, the conditions were horrible, like in terms of travel and, and sometimes playing double headers and three games in three days. And I mean, it was difficult, but, but it was the dream. So with all of that, it was a slam dunk decision, pardon the pun, <laughs> to, to play in Israel for a year. It wasn't a slam dunk position. It was a position, it was a situation that came about by being an experience in my first year in Israel. Right. Now, if you're talking about the conditions you mentioned, if that was the conditions in the NBA, like you say, and probably much more than what you you just said, (laughs) I'm sure it was much worse than what you said, but still, it was the NBA. Right. In Israel, it was much worse than what was in the NBA. So talk about that year. Talk about you know, that first year in Israel. If you're talking about conditions coming from the University of Illinois, 16,618 <laughs> right. a game. Right, and, and packed and every game, right? Packed every packed, game. Yeah. Packed, yeah, Band, we had a private plane, DC-10 at the time. Today <laughs> you're going with jets, but we had a, right. it was a DC-10, cheerleaders, uh, band, uh, a line whack, a chief, you know, uh, <laughs> raising the spirits of the crowd. Yeah. Uh, prime time. Prime time, you know, uh, as an athlete, uh, yeah, prime time. Um, but in Israel, I came for making a difference. But the conditions were even catastrophic <laughs> as far as, I mean, more than primitive. I mean, we played our uh, games at outdoors. We got rained out. The bus, we would go in the buses that were bumpy and iron uh, chairs. You know, the oh. chairs were like from iron that you would, you know, you, you would have a headache even before you started the game. We had games where we had sandstorms. Games we had in the middle of a cow pasture that the basketball court was outside in the middle of a cow pasture. Uh, playing up in Jerusalem, it's the same weather as the, the winter as today. We had to play, the games were outdoors. Wow. So the locker rooms was probably <laughs> the worst that you could ever find in the world, you know. <laughs> Not in the world, but let's say compared to the United States. So everything was different. But I had a goal, and when I started to change my opinion that wait a minute, you know, I said that I'm going to come back after a year, you know, and, but once our team started to play outside of Israel, I saw what it meant as an Israeli team, Jewish team coming into Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, Romania, 
various East European countries, I saw how the Jewish communities reacted to our team. Wow. They would right. come up to us, hug us, kiss us. I mean, it was, it was something, you know, I, I can't say strange, but it was something of, of something which I never experienced that in the, in, in the U.S. people don't go out on the floor and kiss the players, you know, but, uh, right. you know, and, uh, you know and hug them or whatnot. But, the, you know, you're, you're not allowed to go out onto the floor. But we saw the, our team, we, we saw the reaction, how important it was for the Jewish communities in East Europe. Now going into West Europe, playing in France, Germany, Spain, Italy, God, Belgium, I mean, also the same reaction of the Jewish communities, how proud they were that our team could come in and even win against these countries, you know, and um this hit me in a way yeah then coming into israel i saw how proud the people were in israel and how excited uh, when we could win against these teams in the european cup championship the first year we went from a team from the first round all the way to the finals right and on the way we had to play a spanish team which the Spanish basketball is great, the same like the Italian league. Right. And we lost by 32 points outside, and, but we won by 32 in Israel. And then we had to play another game, we won by 26. And I saw this whole country go upside down. <laughs> it was amazing. Basketball became more popular than soccer. Right. This is when? What, what year are you talking the, about? I'm talking here? about 1966-67. Okay. Uh, my first season and the this excitement of the whole country you couldn't get a ticket for a basketball game hmm. now as we passed the semi-final we went to the finals against the team uh, Ignis Fereza from Italy and even the prime minister had difficult Levi Uskol had difficulty getting a ticket at wow. the time for the basketball game so <laughs> all this had a affected me I saw what basketball was doing and that it became you know, now, by going around the country, also teaching and giving clinics, uh, working at the in- Inst- Wingate Institute, as right. uh, uh, working with the basketball programs over there, and giving clinics all over the country, you know, I've, I started to feel that what Zionism is, and that's when Aliyah started to come into me after that beginning, that first year, Okay, the conditions were not like in the States, but I saw what the reaction was when an Israeli team could go and win against other teams in Europe. And then I saw the importance because I saw how it affected the country, the spirit of the country, how the pride of the people felt. And what more even is that the athletes in other sports, in judo, in tennis, windsurfing, became affected in a way that they could say, hey, hey, maybe if, if the basketball can do this, maybe we can do this in other sports. Interesting. That's when I start feeling that, you know what, I want to come back for a second year to see how this thing is developing. And as this was going on, the dream of the NBA <clears throat> at that period of time started to drift away and 
the goal of taking the Israeli basketball to a level that maybe we could even win the European Basketball Championship came on as a goal because I saw the importance it was for the Jewish communities outside of Israel as well as the Israelis uh, within Israel, you know, the Jewish right. community within Israel. So that's when I decided to come back for the first year, the second year, came back to Israel for the second year, and the social life in Israel started to affect me, the how... The, this is now post-Six-Day War. Okay. Did you, did you fight of, in the Six-Day War? No, no. Oh, okay. at, at the end of the, my first year, was at the time, was, as the season ended, uh, things started to get rough with uh, Egypt as they closed the Tyron Straits. Mm -hmm. There started to be dogfights up in the Syrian Golan Heights. Right. And then um, the, I got a notice from the American Embassy that uh, American citizens, I didn't have dual citizens at that mm -hmm. time, I was mm -hmm. an American citizen. And at that time, academics, uh, apparently they released with a 2A deferment and I was here in Israel. And they, they said that I would have to go back to the, you know, to leave Israel. They suggested right. to leave Israel. And I felt that I couldn't leave Israel. And I went with a group of uh, uh, soldiers in, in Ben Shemin and the Modin in that area. Uh, it was a, a tank crew or half track crew, and uh, we did sports and until the war, until everything started. Uh, they were in the field, and we did sports activities and everything. And then, then I had to go up to Jerusalem, and that's when, uh, for the the Ministry of Sport, right? Uh, and when I was there, that's when all of a sudden uh, we were near the Mandelbaum Gate and all of a sudden mortars started to come into Israel from the Jordanian side. And that's when the Six Days War started. And uh, yeah, I stayed in Israel and the war was six, six seven days or whatnot and uh, everything cleared out. And, and then I felt really attached to the country because I, I saw the reaction of the people how everybody wanted to volunteer and to go into the army and everything that if they weren't called up. And I started to feel a part of this development that was happening. And that's when I wanted to come back for a second year. And then I, I had to get, uh, went back uh, to the States after that. And I, I got a, I was, I asked the draft board if I, uh, what's the situation? This is the Vietnam era, right? Yeah, right before the height of it. Yeah, yeah. So they said, yes, you can go back to Israel and uh, went back. And after my second year in the social life, the cultural life, everything around Israel, plus what was I saw that was happening with the basketball, when I thought when I was going to make Aliyah to Israel, that's when I got called up to the U.S. Army. Hmm. And it was uh, uh, the height of uh, 68 to 70 during the Vietnam area. Did my basic training in Fort, Pol uh, Fort Dix, and then advanced infantry, Fort Polk, Louisiana. Right. And in the middle of uh, the training, I was called up uh, to go out to the Presidio for the all-army basketball tryouts. In California. California, right. the Presidio, and 30... Uh, 
guys that were all more, more or less all American in college and basketball from all the four and a half million soldiers uh, were sent to the Presidio. Right. This is just and like to rally some troops, like it, it was to 30, entertainment for the no, troops. No, it wasn't an, there wasn't entertainment for what the troops. What was it? It was uh, uh, the tryouts for the all army basketball team. For what? Okay. <laughs> The all-army basketball team is like uh, it was 30 guys. Yeah. After 30 days, I was within the 12 that was chosen for the all-army basketball team. Right. And then it went on to we played an inter-service tournament, and we we won the inter-service tournament also Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force. Right. And then I was chosen to the Armed Forces basketball team. And what type of service it was, like special services sports, that we would play on around in the bases, in huh. all the Army bases. Uh, yes, for, So like the Harlem Globetrotters, to like, yeah, not for, like to the entertain Harlem Globetrotters. the troops. We would, no. we would play. The, no, no, I'm saying not, not in terms of joking around, but in terms of like going around and entertaining people. It was entertaining the soldiers yeah, yeah, at the different yeah. bases and whatnot yeah. because, uh, uh, but the games were serious. I mean, they're good teams. I mean, in sure. the U.S. Army, everybody called up, played basketball. You know, I mean, uh, right. I mean, uh, we, we had good, game, tough games. And then, <laughs> because we were, we won the AAU championship in the United States that seven of us were chosen to play on the U.S. team to the world championships. And that's when we picked up, uh, we were allowed to pick up five players because right. like NBA ball players were not allowed to play in the world championship right. and in the Olympics at that period of time. So Billy Walton was just coming out of high school, the number one player in the U.S. And because he was before college, he was able to play with us and uh, we were roomed together and that's when we became good friends uh, up to I didn't today. Know that. Really? Yeah. Uh, and so Billy Walton, we picked up Jim Williams from Temple University, yeah. uh, uh, Joe Isaacs, and uh, we had a good team. Then uh, we went into, we played about 200 games around the world, which is, uh, was like for uh, the U.S. for goodwill. Mm -hmm. Uh, the only place that in South America that it didn't let us go in was Venezuela, but we would play the national teams of those countries, and in the daytime we would go out and work with schools, beautiful, do clinics in wow. schools, uh, demonstrations, uh, different type of uh, fundamentals, and yes, yeah, so it was like um, you can call it, uh, yeah, goodwill. That's what the, the purpose was of these teams is basically for goodwill and uh, to keep uh, the spirit of the soldiers and when we were within the bases and uh, out of the bases in South America for goodwill and also when we went to Europe. Where's so, Israel on your mind during this time? Israel, because there wasn't any internet and wasn't any, um, you know, Facebook and whatnot. Uh, but I would get letters from Israel. And then when I was just finished after the U.S. team that we, in the World Championships and went back to Fort Polk, I get a Passover a message from uh, a card from uh, Moshe Dayan, you know, you're going to be coming back to Israel and continuing he, he the work. He was a fan. Yeah, continuing the work that you've been doing. Right. And that's why I went back to, 
to Israel as an Ole Chadash, yeah, 1970. Right. And seven years later, we took for the first time the European Basketball Championship. That and was 1977. 1981, we took for the second time in Strasbourg in France. The third time was in Paris. The fourth time was in Tel Aviv. Uh, the fifth time was in uh, Moscow, uh, the final four. And then the sixth time, the final four was in Madrid. You know, it was in uh, Milano, Italy. We right. played Real Madrid and uh, the Russian team, Tseska. And, uh, well, that was uh, completing six times that our team won the European Basketball Championship. And. In 19, when we beat the, it was the Russian team for, uh, that we beat in 2017, 2017, I believe. And Real Madrid was one of the best teams in Europe. But when we beat them in 1977, right. they didn't want to play us in Tel Aviv. They didn't want us to go to Russia to play them. But it was the Soviet Union team. Right. Soviet Union team is compri was comprised of the best players from 22 satellite countries, which today make up a good part of the 25% of the players that are playing in the NBA. And they were, I mean, they were really professionals. Yeah. Like this was their life. Their life was to team. go into the Russian army and that was their life. That's right. You know, the best players from Lithuania, Slovenia, Serbia, uh, Ukraine, Russia itself. I mean, right. these, these were the satellite countries of the Soviet Union. Right. And we beat them in 1977 in a little town called Virton in Belgium. <laughs> a 500-seat stadium. Really? Where 498 came from, uh, Jews came from Israel and Europe to support us and only two KGB agents uh, supporting <laughs> the, the Russian team, the uh, Soviet Union team. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was the first time that we won. Now, um, that's when I, uh, that season, I said, okay, that's when I'm gonna, uh, after that season 77, that's when I figure I'm, you know, I got the goal of going to Israel. That was my goal. And I reached that goal. And now I'm gonna retire from basketball, live in Israel, Married today, uh, my wife and I, Tirza, we have together three children and 12 grandchildren living in Israel, <laughs> and we're all here. And uh, uh, after basketball, that's when I started to get into with charity organizations and philanthropic organizations and Jewish organizations that are working day and night to support Israel. And that's basically uh, up to today what I'm doing. So we're going to get to that in a second. I want to go back to 77. The famous line that you said after, after the championship, yeah. and, I, and I know I'm not going to get it exactly right, but basically saying that Israel is now on the map and not just in basketball, we're going to be on the map in everything. Yeah, and so now, but you want to say the actual quote? Go ahead, and then no, I'll ask I mean, you a question uh, about like, it. Like during that game against the Soviet Union team, yeah. It was a game that uh, most of the people in Israel thought that, well, if we could just uh, not lose by 20, 30 points to be an embarrassment, it would be a great achievement. They didn't even think that we were going to beat the team. But when right. we came no, it was in... Like, it was like Israel's version of the 
U.S. hockey team in 1980, the Miracle on Ice. That's yeah, basically going like into that. the game. It was like there's no chance. Yeah. So <laughs> when we we started the game, I remember as captain of Maccabi Tel Aviv with the Israeli flag and Sergei Belov, captain of the Soviet Union team. As we walked in with the Russian for the Soviet flag, when we walked into the stadium, they saw Israeli flags all over the place. Uh, our fans were singing Chavenu Shalom Aleichem, wow. Am Yisrael Chai. This is in Russia? The, no, this was in Verton in Belgium. Oh, sorry, Belgium, right. In Verton in Belgium, right. a small arena that yeah, they yeah, chose yeah, yeah. because they didn't want to come to Tel right. Aviv, they didn't right. want us to come to Russia. Yeah, that's right. And um, it was an amazing atmosphere that just picked us up and they were in shell shock. They were shocked. <laughs> and they even, when the game started, they couldn't get anything right. And wow. we won the game 91-79. And after the game, everybody just rushed down to the floor, dancing the Horan, singing. And within all that spirit, the announcer came to me, Alex Gilladi, and he asked me, Tal, how do you feel about the game? And that's when it just came out of my heart that uh, we were on the map, we're staying on the map, not only in sport, but in everything. And little did I realize how much that meant to the country until we came back and the Prime Minister Robin uh, at his offices uh, uh, said to me, he said, Tal, you don't realize what you said, that you know, we're after the 73 Yom Kippur War, four years after. Right. The country during those four years is many people with a feeling of uh, are sad because of loss of a son or daughters or acquaintances in, in the 73 war. And here comes a basketball team that just puts everybody out to the streets, proud, waving Israeli flag, singing and forgetting, you know, for a while that sadness that they have, in, uh, have inside and coming out with that statement that we're staying on the map, not only in sport, but in everything. Uh, I think it means so much to us at this difficult period of time. And yeah, that's, uh, that was really something that also uh, more or less, you know, myself, uh, feeling that I made the right decision, you know, and uh, about, you know, taking, giving up that opportunity and, and seeing what, what basketball has done for this country. So, I know the answer before I ask the question, but I have to ask the question anyway, and let's see what you do with it. When you say, not just in sport, but in everything, could you have ever envisioned what Israel has become today? We are on the map in everything now. <laughs> I'll tell you, I've always been a person of uh, self-confidence and visionary in a way, in thinking. And by living in Israel since 1966-67, outside of taking the two years in the U.S. Army, I got to know the country, you know, from upside down, from giving mm. clinics all over the country. And I felt the potential of this country. I saw the Technion, I saw the universities, Tel Aviv University, University of Jerusalem, uh, and all the educational centers, and, and I, I felt that this country is growing. I, I've seen 
what from the sand, I see what's happening in the Negev, I see the, the, what's happening up in the north, especially today with the support of uh, JNF USA. I mean, I've I seen what's been happening all over from the far south to the frontier lands, <laughs> to the frontier up in the north, uh, what they call peripheral, so we call it frontiers, you know. It's, uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, uh, to say that I knew it's going to happen, you couldn't say that you knew it's going to develop like what Israel is today. I mean, uh, who, would, who would think of the Iron Dome, you know, who would think that's what's happening with pharma, with medicine, and all the technology that's happening on with water desalinization that we're 80, 90 percent of our water is desalinated. I mean, it, I mean it's uh, amazing the things that are happening here. Um, you know, so you just make an interview just on the going, going through the technologies, you <laughs> right. know, I mean, uh, when I uh, was living in Herzliya uh, near the sea, it took me eight years to get a telephone. <laughs> now you just change your cell phones, you know. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's uh, completely different. It's a letter to the United States would maybe take 10 days or more. Or when, I, when we did get a telephone, they said, well, uh, the best rate is after 12 o'clock at night. You would have to wait until 12 o'clock at night because it costs you a couple dollars a minute if you would call in the prime time during the day. Sure. Yeah, things have changed, definitely. The basketball courts have changed. We have 11,000-seat stadium from an outside arena. <laughs> in Jerusalem, they got a beautiful 11,000-seat stadium. In Haifa, a nice, beautiful stadium. Uh, so you have the basketball is indoors. That's an achievement. <laughs> right. Okay, I want to talk about two things, and then we'll get to the rapid-fire questions. Two other things. Number one, I want to talk about um, you uh, remembering what it was like growing up in the States versus what you've seen in terms of your own kids growing up in Israel uh, and how that's been, and then I want to talk about what you're doing today. So what's it like to raise kids in Israel? I think it's beautiful to raise kids in Israel. You know, first of all, the education and the traditions, you know, your, the holidays. Uh, I mean, God, I mean, uh, all the holidays uh, in Israel, you're, you're within it, you feel it, you know. I mean, uh, there's no way you don't feel it. I mean, uh, you have to leave early in the morning to get out to the JNF parks and everything, and it's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's usually all the, all the time on the radio, say you got 100,000 people on the roads, on the parks and whatnot, and they'll, you know, uh, try to do something different. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's different. I mean, uh, it's different. I mean, uh, my life being brought up in the States was basically centered around basketball. Uh, basketball and the goal of uh, education in order to go to college and to be able to get the opportunity or chance to play professional basketball. Um, I lived in, a, a, it was a non-Jewish area, but I did have uh, friends because of the basketball, uh, where the schools, where the Jewish schools were, they're also good in basketball, you know, and the, my friends until today are friends from Trenton, which, uh, yeah. Yeah, Phil Gardner, San Francisco, my fraternity brothers, uh, right. the Werner brothers, and uh, Gary from Philadelphia, Gary Obam. I mean, the guys that uh, all the time, I've, all through the years, we've been in contact. So yeah. it's been great contacts 
from the States are still my best friends today, you know. And, but in Israel, you're living your life uh, naturally as being a Jew. You know, everything is, you know, you don't have to remember the holidays because the holidays are, uh, remember you because you're <laughs> part of the holidays here. Yeah. You know, Yom Kippur, nobody's driving and uh, you don't go to the beach, you don't go to the pools. I mean, you feel the holidays. Rosh Hashanah, yeah, I mean, Purim, it's a great holiday, you know, even, even we get Purim's a week long in Israel. Yeah, I mean, when <laughs> we get dressed up in costumes and uh, the adults have parties as well as the kids, you know. Right. I mean, it's not right. only uh, dancing with the Torah in the streets and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you live the holidays here. And, um, uh, I, I was talking more from the perspective of a lot of people will say, oh, I, I can't move to Israel because the the education there is horrible. Talk about your kids' education. The education is great. I mean, uh, <laughs> how does this country do what it does if the education <laughs> is not great? Right. But you have to understand, in Israel, the natural discussion is always basically this is wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong, everything is wrong and what not is wrong and this has to be this way. That's the Jewish world, you know? <laughs> right. but, Tachlis, I mean, the education is good. I mean, if it wasn't good, we wouldn't get to the success and have the people. And if they haven't been educated during the junior and the high schools, when they go into the army, you have another educational system. And many of the soldiers coming out of the army get that basic to go into developing the high-tech companies. Right. Uh, the Air Force and the different intelligence groups in the Army and whatnot, you're getting that base to go out and to develop your ideas into a high-tech company. So, yes, uh, not only the traditional part, but the educational part, I feel, is good. I've seen my kids. You don't, you're, we're not brought up to hate Arabs or Muslims. And that's what the, our difference is between our kids and kids that are, have to read the books of the United Nations that are brought up in the Palestinian Authority areas that, uh, that they control and whatnot to hate Jews. We're not brought up, my kids are not brought up to hate Muslims or Arabs or Christians or anybody. You know, they're, they're not taught that in schools and basically I would say you're not taught that in the majority of uh, Israelis in the homes, you know. Right, right. Um, okay. Let's talk about what you're up to now, because the well, basketball career ended in 80? No, 1977, and my retirement game was 1980, One game that I had to keep in shape for three years. <laughs> How did <laughs> you do in that year, game? In, in, uh, we won. We, How we did beat, you do? We, did you start and play the, play the whole game, was, or was uh, it ceremonial? I was at an age which you don't really uh, play that much, you know, but uh, I played, yes, and I played against the guys that I played against all those years. Great, uh, great. Especially from Real Madrid, which were a team very close to the Real Madrid team. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, 77, I finished as a player, 1980 was my retirement. Right. And then after that, I started to get into public uh, programs. Uh, uh, I did a program, Let's Play Basketball, all over Israel to promote the game and the educational side of what basketball does educationally. Right. 
the discipline, the self-control, and the teamwork, and all the values of uh, sport, and built an organization in the Herzliya, B'nai Herzliya. Today it's over 1,100 youth are in basketball programs from 5 to 18, which was an inspiration and an example to other cities to build these programs. And uh, with the organizations like the Kids at Risk, I was twice the chairman of the Kids at Risk program in Israel. And then because of the rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Israel, right. uh, I started to answer to the Jewish organizations to come into the States to lecture. And the main organization that I've been doing that for within the last decade was for the Jewish National Fund, JNF USA, because I have seen what they have done for Israel. I mean, Talk about it, that a little bit. most people probably in the United States have known from the past that JNF raises money for the trees right. in Israel. But it's not only the trees and not only for the land. I think over 13% of the Israeli land has been bought by the Jewish, uh, Jewish National Fund. But I have seen the work that they have done with the funds in going north, whether it's uh, in Ma'alat or Tushicha. We have a beautiful park, which was a garbage dump. They made a beautiful <laughs> lake with boats and like an amusement park for kids. I've seen in Akko that have an unbelievable uh, tourist center that they built from a beautiful uh, Arabistic type building yeah. where when people are touring the north you can stop over there and get an idea with over 40 different centers, uh, whether it's uh, in a Mozai Zarit or in a kibbutz or whether it's in the cities, that which is for tourists. Right. It's amazing. JNF in the north have also helped the Culinary Institute in Tel Hai and also in the industrial people to educate them and to work more or less better, you know, the engineers. I mean, it's, and it's amazing. Uh, they want to bring over JNF to the, the build the environment in the north where to bring in more than 300,000 people now to go north of Israel. Right, right. And when you're talking about the southern frontier or the, what people would know it here in Israel as the peripheriot, but uh, it's amazing. From Halutza, uh, Shlomit, B'nai Netzarim on the mm -hmm. Egyptian sure, I've been there. Uh, Gaza border. Yeah to help build a health center, a playgrounds for the kids. There's some nice communities there. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You see the community there. Then as you come up and, you know, like you have Netivot, you got Shtirot, they build a, I even brought the, was the NBA All-Stars and the NFL All-Stars hmm. went down there to play in their uh, play center that JNF built, but it's protected against the uh, rockets coming in from the Gaza Strip. Right. And this is all JNF. Yes, this is all what JNF USA has done. It's amazing. And <laughs> plus, many people, when like even after the last scrimmage, I would call it, with yeah. three, four days and yeah, over a yeah, thousand one hundred rockets. Right. We're firing Israel, and then the Europeans say, "Well, nobody was killed," and some 
tens of people were, were injured and so on, not a big deal. Yes, it's a big deal because JNF has built a, what they call Merkaz Hosen, these resilience centers mm -hmm. for the parents, for the mothers and the fathers of kids. When they have 15 seconds, they can't find their kids if they went into a shelter or not, you know, and this causes a lot of mental problems, really a shock. This goes and back to your master's degree, actually. Yes, but the, these, <laughs> this is what J, uh, JNF uh, USA has done, yeah. you know, in building these resilience centers and uh, also on the road. You're saying it's for like psychological support? For yes, parents? definitely. Unbelievable. For, for the parents, for the youth, uh, for the kids that are shocked by it. If uh, a, a rocket or his missiles is falling by their house, yeah. it's a shock, the boom, you know, and everything that's happening. And then when you go and you see on the roads, let's say if you're driving in a road and you hear the air raid uh, sirens, you have to stop on the roads. And uh, again, I see that JNF has built these cement uh, bomb shelters, right. which they painted and made it beautiful right. that people would want to go in. Yeah, they would yeah, stop. Yeah. Instead of laying on the ground, they go into a bomb shelter. Yeah. And if you're not, especially if you're not, if you're not driving a car, if you're in the street in Stirot or any of the areas south of Tel Aviv, where the rockets have come in, even to Rishon LeZion, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and uh, Beersheba, and going south. And if you look at the city of Beersheba, what JNF has done, it's amazing. You have the uh, amphitheater, you have the water park, you have uh, Abraham's Well, the museum, right, right. you know. And then when you go into the old city, helping the renovations that are happening there, in desperate need. They need what, that. And <laughs> what, what one of the main projects now is that they have the land that they're going to make a World Zionist campus, uh, educational and technology campus, like with Alexander Moose High School in Huda Sharon, that right. can get up to 1,500 kids from many from the States. Sure which are either for a short-term 10 days summer program or two weeks or let's say 10 months or to give them an education about Israel. They're going to build for 5,000 people, 5,000 uh, youth or young adults in, Be you, in Beersheba. You, you know? You've said so many interesting things. It could be that the listeners are like most amazed by this JNF piece because no, I'm, these I'm, are things that I'm people outside of Israel just don't know about. It's amazing. No, people don't know. It's amazing. And, you know, you have many Jewish organizations that are working for Aliyah. And when they also ask me, well, the Maccabea game, the Maccabia game, or the Maccabia games, Maccabi games, right. it's not only that this time we had over 10,000 uh, athletes there coming from close to 80 countries, maybe up to 5% will make Aliyah. But 95% of those kids that say will go back to their homes, wherever they're living, they're going to be the front line for public diplomacy about right. telling what Israel's story is. And this is the amazing part about it. And as I say, when you're, if you're going to build a, a campus for 5,000 youth, because 1,500 is the capacity today. So these kids, when they go home wow. after going for whatever type of program to the JNF's uh, educational and technology campus, 
They're, they're our front line. They're the front line for Israel. It's a blessing to have these kids that are going to be coming here. So that's what I'm saying. For the various Jewish organizations, uh, many are doing great work, whether you have Israel bonds, and you, then you got the uh, J, uh, uh, Jewish Federation North America with the young leadership groups. I mean, it's so important that all these groups and even maybe even work together to do things. And you got the, the you know, you have the Maccabi World Union that has Maccabi organizations all over the world, 450,000 members. Wow. When the Ukrainian-Russia uh, war started and uh, what was happening that the Ukrainians were getting bombed all over the place is that many of the Maccabi organizations all through that, that borderline with Ukraine helped to get over 5,000 Jews out of the... Ukraine into ho uh, bus them out into hotels and came, whoever came to Israel came to Israel or stayed in Poland or stayed in Europe but to get them out to save many of those uh, people the Jewish in the Jewish community right right incredible so you keep busy that's for sure very I have a, with <laughs> thank you for giving me your time today obviously it's valuable with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, yeah. oh well, also, you're still going. With the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, over 10 years ago, I was appointed at Israel's uh, first uh, ambassador of goodwill. Amazing. And I took it on as a voluntary uh, position. And with that, uh, speaking uh, throughout the United States on the college campuses, um, from Penn Temple uh, all the way out to UCLA and in between Harvard and Yale and and it's very interesting. It's a battle uh, on the campuses. It's a very, a lot of misinformation, especially today when we have the Abraham Accord. The Abraham Accord, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, uh, Morocco, uh, plus you have the agreements with Egypt and Jordan that have become more naturalization with Israel and all of a sudden, what, right. what does BDS have an existence for? All these resolutions that they're trying to make, the Muslim organizations on the campuses. I mean, we're lucky today that we also have uh, Christians United for Israel and passages right. that many times join the Jewish kids on campuses to fight these resolutions. So it's a different world. It's an anti-Semitic world that has developed, which uh, unfortunately, which uh, nobody ever realized would happen after World War II and after the Holocaust, but uh, it's out there. There's a problem with freedom of speech, but uh, you don't have freedom of, to incite. And so this is a lot of the work which I'm doing also with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs yeah. as a goodwill ambassador. And I do that with the JNF in the USA. and. Uh, which gives support also to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs many times because you have the changing of the governments and then you don't have budgets coming in. So right. uh, very fortunate to have uh, an organization like that to continue backing Israel. Your name. People think it's Tal, but it's Tal from Talbot. What's your Hebrew name? Tal. When you were a kid, it was Tal, yeah, Tal also? Tal. Oh, okay, my, fine. Don't, don't, uh, don't forget, my father was oh, in Israel. Right. he had been in Israel. And of you course. have Hoshat Tal. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's sure. a sure. waterfall up in the, in, the, in the north of Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's on my passport, it's Tal. <laughs> right. Um, okay, uh, quick basketball question. I don't know if it's going to wind up in the final. 
in the final recording, but I have to ask you, what do you think of the game today and who do you like who's playing well, today? The, the game today has changed. Dramatically. Dramatically. I mean, let's say like we talked before about Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, yeah. and after Even Bill their Walton. area, uh, Bill, or, you know, Bill Walton, Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. The highest paid players in the NBA has always been those big centers. Yeah. And the big players were always the first line in the draft. Steph Curry has changed the game. The highest salaries in the NBA today are four or five of the top guards in the NBA. Then even right. LeBron's after them. LeBron is probably fifth or sixth. Right. You know, right. when you right. get Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, John Wall, uh, James Harden. Harding, yeah. you know, you're talking about 44, 45 million, then 30 some million. I mean, they, these are all guards shooting. You know, the three point game has changed who the top players that the coaches want to take, you know. So, and, who do you like? But the offensive players have changed. The off offense is a lot easier today. You can dribble. If I would dribble through my legs and around my back and whatnot, tag, tag, shake and bake like that. <laughs> Instead of making a basic up and down dribble, <laughs> right. your coach would sit, uh, sit us on the bench, right. you know, for showboating. Uh, showboating, you know. Right. No, the game, the offensive game is uh, unbelievable. It's turned to the best shooters on the court, and uh, uh, the rules have changed also. The three-point shot. Now you, you know, you have a three-point shot. No oh, hand checking. up on the area of a two-point shot. You know, I mean, we didn't have the three-point right. shot. Yes, the game has changed, and uh, of course, uh, David Stern and bringing in the television rights, and uh, as the televisions have developed throughout the world, throughout the United States, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, so the game has definitely uh, changed, conditions who do, who, of the game have changed, everything. Who do you like? I like, I mean, everybody loves uh, Steph Curry in right. Golden State because it's the guard game yeah. out there and everything, but they always like the Chicago Bulls. Oh, okay. Yeah, Chicago Bulls, the Knicks I always like because yeah. from the East Coast and right. the 76ers, right. but uh, right. Chicago Bulls has always been because I studied in you know, University of Illinois and fighting right. Illini. It's always been a team for me and yeah. they're coming back, yeah, they're coming back, but uh, yeah, Golden State. I'm glad that the guards are having their time in history today. That's right. Okay, rapid fire questions. Here we go. You can answer them as quickly or take as much time as you want. Um, in the Brody home, Heinz ketchup or Israeli ketchup? In the United States, it was Heinz ketchup. I'm saying here, in the, ah, this Brody ah, home. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. we have, we have uh, Heinz ketchup because I'm used to it from my... <laughs> Uh, I'm used to it from all my life. I swear. It was Heinz ketchup, but right. uh, yeah, probably Heinz. Is there an Israeli food that you really, really love? Israeli food, I, I love. I like, uh, you know, the desserts, everything. First of all, it's much different because when I came to Israel, it was only chicken. <laughs> but now you can get a good steak in Israel. But uh, I'm eating more fish these days. I love the Israeli salads. You know, basically. You mean like the twelve salads they put out on the table? That whole not, thing, or, no, or classic Israeli not, salad? I, I actually not don't like all the twelve salads. Right. You know, but I love the Israeli salads. The when you have the lettuce, tomatoes uh, cut up with in small uh, pieces. Yeah, with right. a little broccoli sometimes and. Uh, 
<laughs> cucumbers and uh, little green onions and I like this, the, the rotev, the sauces. Yeah. Is there an Israeli food that you say to yourself, I don't understand how anybody can like this? I, uh, actually, I don't like, uh, from my personal thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, my, my kids and grandkids, they love it, but I, uh, olives, mayonnaise, uh, hatzalim is... Uh, eggplant. Eggplant are not on my list of things <laughs> which I like. You know, right. so that's on my list that I don't like. Right. But I, I love Israeli pizza. I mean, Israel, in Israel they make excellent pizza. Wow. Okay. Crispy, uh, thin, not a lot of cheese on it these days, you know, which I don't like to put a lot of cheese on here. But when I go back to the United States, I always look in Trenton for Di Lorenzo's pizza. It was the best? Great, the best in the world. Wow, interesting. Uh, but the Israeli pizzas are good. Israeli pizzas are good. The Hebrew uh, Israeli accent. Uh, Israeli you, you, accent? Your, your Israeli accent. When you speak Hebrew, you speak with an American accent. Did you ever try the Israeli accent? Why, I never, why I never learned Hebrew. Right? Well, you, but you I never Hebrew went to now, the Opan. Right? But I, I, because I learned it from the, more or less the street. I never thought I was going to be in Israel, I'm right. telling you. My first year, I only came for a year. Uh, now it's I'm 56 years, I think. But, but uh, I, I never studied in the Ulpan. If I would have studied in the Ulpan, I won't, make, I, I, I won't make the mistakes between the feminine and the masculine. And I make a lot of mistakes between the feminine and the masculine. I still get stuck on words. But because of the time that I'm here and the street and the television and whatnot, it's, um, you know, so I'm speaking without the base of, really the base of Hebrew as if I would have learned in the Ulpan. If I say, if I made any mistake about all the years that I would think, uh, what was my biggest mistake was not studying in the Ulpan. Wow, interesting. Yeah. And by the way, I love hummus and tchina with uh, <laughs> the pita here. And right, you could put that in yeah. with my list of things which I love. And shishlik, I really love. You know, um, uh, before with we the, started... With the, the salads. Oh, okay. The salad. And then with the desserts, uh, my, wife, my wife makes a good creme, creme schnitz. Creme schnitz? I don't know. I don't even know what that is. That is. Ah, oh, that's with a creme inside with a layer of a cake here. Wow. So uh, creme creme schnitz. They call it creme schnitz. And, it's delicious. Uh, slam, I love. But, uh, but here they have great fruits, watermelon and uh, all the pineapples. I mean, you, you could, the, it's great to have the fruits, you know, but they don't, they, they don't use, usually it's not the first dish. In the States, when you have a fruit cocktail, I think it's the first thing. Yeah. Yeah. And here it's the last. Right. You know? right. right. But well, for in between, I love it. You know, <laughs> in between, I love the fruits. Um, I noticed before we started recording, you were speaking with your son. It's his birthday today. It's very nice. Yes. And you were speaking to him in Hebrew. Yeah. Do you speak to any of your kids in English? Did you ever speak to any of your in kids in In the beginning, English? yes. When they were younger, uh, yes, in English. My son and my daughter both know English very well. And uh, the grandkids are okay. So we're a very well-rounded family. We have... Uh, uh, one side of the grandkids, they also know Russian. Interesting. Because my daughter-in-law, she's from uh, Moscow. Oh, okay. And uh, so uh, English, Hebrew, Russian. Yeah, so we're well-rounded. <laughs> um, 
the idea of a pet peeve, those kind of little annoying things that drive us crazy, like you know, some people, uh, their pet peeve is uh, someone who chews with their mouth open or whatever. Are well, there any yeah, pet yeah. peeves about life in Israel that you have? Well, yeah, cause, uh, because like my Hebrew, um, you know, I, before I say in Hebrew, I have to think about it a little bit. If I don't think about it, so when you're in a crowd, when I want to say something, a lot of times somebody else is speaking. That kills me all the time. You know, I, have to, I try to raise my hand like in the States and then somebody knows you want to say something. But in Israel, everybody speaks. When you're in, you're in a group and it's only Israelis, everybody is speaking and speaking. You want to say something, then somebody else already just said something before you wanted to say, because you don't know when the guy's going to finish. But before he finished, somebody else already started and whatnot. So you, you have to get adjusted to that in some way. But I still raise my hand, (laughs) especially when I'm in a a board of directors meeting someplace. And and if I want to say something, I I raise my hand. Otherwise, you're not going to get a chance to say anything. What brings you to tears of joy or pride in Israel? I'll tell you, when I see something like Mokiksegi, judo, in Abu Dhabi, an Arabic country, that when he won the gold medal in the European or World, World Judo Championships, he was, he was allowed to play with the Star of David on his uniform, and they played a tikva. When I saw that, I mean, that, that's something that you can't, uh, the chills and everything around you. Also, there's a, a paraplegic athlete, uh, Moran Samuel, when she got the gold medal in Italy, they couldn't find the Hatikva. They couldn't find a recording. The recording, and she sang Hatikva. This is something which, you know, goes deep into your heart, you know. Yeah, beautiful. What's been better than you expected about life in Israel? Well, the food has improved. <laughs> Not only have chicken today, right. but uh, better than expected is... Um, well, no, because thing I have because I have been here, I have seen where Israel has come from. Right. So everything is better than what I expected. Right. You know, uh, by yeah, it's kind of an unfair question because I yeah. expected only to come for one year. Yeah. yeah. But the Zion, if you talk about Zionism, it came to me from being in Israel. It didn't come from me of anything from the outside of Israel. Right. But by being here, I believe you become Zionistic. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Uh, Is there a favorite place in Israel that you love visiting? Yeah. Uh, We love going down to Eilat, you know, uh, for vacation. And uh, uh, our most favorite favorite place is the Acadia Hotel pool. Really? Where our friends, we meet every Saturday uh, at the pool. And... uh, that's in the early morning, and then all the, the family is coming. Uh, uh, the grandkids, uh, children, they're coming. The only ones that don't come are from B'nai Brak, right. but because they don't drive on Saturday. And we have the sea, and we have the pool, and we have the restaurant on the beach, and the beach itself has been unbelievably Every developed. Shabbat you do this? Just a bit, when wow. I'm in Israel, even in the winter. Wow. Yeah. Even in the Real winter. family time. Yeah. 
Israel families know how to do weekends, don't they? My, They're really good at it. It's not only a weekends, it's <laughs> that, uh, you know, today, as I said, that uh, many because of uh, JNF USA and Karen Kayemet in Israel, the facilities mm. of doing things has become a greater increase in social life, in the cultural life, in the environment of Israel. The more these are developed, the more the, you have, especially keeping people in Israel, but you have more for that 300,000 that want to go right. develop the North and that 500,000 that they're making it into in order to make Beersheba the central of Israel. Right, right. They're giving right. a life to everybody out there. And so many things are happening to giving that cultural life, that educational life, the social life, the environment that people would love not only being in Tel Aviv, but will love being on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, especially in the frontier areas. Yeah. What do you miss most about where you came from? Other than the pizza at De Lorenzo's. Well, you know, I mean, uh, I don't have football, but they do have a football league in here. Uh, but on the cable TV, you can see everything today. You know, when I came to Israel, when after my first year, they had television after the Six, uh, six Days War. There was only one channel. That's also why basketball became so popular. The only thing on a Thursday night at 8.30 was our team, Maccabi Tel Aviv, playing right. in the European Championships. Right, right. So... This was great, and uh, um, what was the, the, the question? What you, what you miss about what you came from? Uh, what I miss about the from? States? I'm, I'm back in the States, practically, um, as I say, for speaking for JNF uh, USA, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, NBA All-Star Weekend. Uh, I'm invited back every year. Next year it's going to be in Utah. Uh, the corona sort of uh, put a crack in there, you know, but yeah. uh, we hope that everything will be back to normal. Um, so, I really can't say is, is what I'm missing because I think I have everything that I want to enjoy your mm -hmm. life, especially the old, the, as you get older and you have children and you have grandchildren, as my sister says, she's living, my sister Rini, she's living in Denver, Colorado. She says, Tal, how lucky you are that you see your children and your grandchildren. Small country. Yeah, because she's on a plane to go to San Francisco. Right. It's not, not easy, you know, to every place you want to see your children and grandchildren, you have to fly or drive hours in a car, you right. know. And right. I, think, I think it's one of the greatest things about Israel as you start to build a family. Two more questions. Yes. Is Aliyah for everyone? Aliyah, we would love to have everybody make Aliyah to Israel, but I, I believe, as I said before, when you have 10,000 that are participating in the Maccabee games, and let's say seven and a half, 8,000 are coming from all over, the, uh, close to 80 countries in the world. Right. They go back to their countries with such a battery or heart full of love of Israel that I don't think every one of those one, uh, 10,000 or 8,000 have to make Aliyah to Israel. I think it's just as important that they can stand up for Israel where they are living because they have been in Israel. They see that we're not an apartheid state. 
They feel that Israel has problems like every place in the world. They feel safe in Israel. They see the joys of Israel, especially let's say like if they're in Tel Aviv or even outside of Tel Aviv in the amphitheaters, that they see the rock groups, they see right. the different singers that are coming into Israel, the, you know, and so I think that, I don't think that everyone has to make Aliyah to Israel. Mm -hmm. I think it's just as important, maybe even today, even more important to be able to be out of Israel, but able and have that education to stand up for Israel. And that's, that's why I'm very happy working with JNF because that's what they're giving the opportunity for these youth when they're coming to Israel, short term, mid term, long term, when they go back home, if they're not going to make Aliyah to Israel, it's to stand, at least to stand, don't be embarrassed and stand up to Israel. And stand up for Israel. Right. Last question. What's your magnet? And I'll explain. You know, people have magnets on their refrigerators with all cute little sayings. And so what's your magnet that keeps you focused on making a difference for this Look, country? I think looking at the big picture, realizing that Israel is not perfect, realizing that you're part of history, you know, the, everybody that's coming here, you're part of history, everybody that's coming here is coming basically from most of the people from the outside with knowledge that they can contribute. And you have to understand that not to sweat the small stuff. If you're at a bank and then all of a sudden somebody or the teller's asking you about your bank account and then you have one person on the left side and one person on the left side that you don't know who they are, <laughs> that they want to hear what your situation is or look <laughs> in your bank account, what's happening. Right, right. <laughs> or then they'll ask you, what's your salary? You know, <laughs> if you could take all this on the light side and don't sweat the small stuff and feel that you're part of a growing history, that it, you are important are being here and you can contribute to the country. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, the feeling that uh, I think a person has after a period of time, you know, knowing it, it's a good feeling. Tal Brody, thank you very, very much for returning again to your story and sharing so many interesting, important thoughts with our listeners. And uh, you should just keep impacting the world the way you've been impacting it, helping to build this country and make a difference for the Jewish people. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you.